Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 404 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode features Chris Heeslip. Chris is the founder of PushPay and Leader. And, um, well, we talk about all things like 14 startups before he hit 30, why they didn't work out, why one did, and how to go from $1 million to $100 million in revenue in four years. Going to be a fascinating conversation. And uh, this episode is brought to you by our friends over at ProMediaFire. You can get help with your social media management and digital growth and get 10% off for life by going to promediafire.com forward slash carry and by ServeHQ. Simply go to servehq.church to sign up for your 14-day free trial and use code carry C-A-R-E-Y, to get 10% off for life. Well, I'm so grateful for all of you. We are uh, seeing so much traction on the podcast this year, and that's because you're engaged, you're sharing, and I love hearing from you. Uh, so I heard from Pete over in the UK, and he said, I started listening to the podcast since lockdown here in the UK started. So he's been a listener for about a year. He said, each week, he's loved taking about an hour or so to ride his bike, listen to the interviews. He's covered around 2,200 miles listening to this podcast, which is incredible. And he says the last dozen have been especially helpful. He's hoping to cover 4,000 miles in 2021. And uh, hopefully he can finish the back catalog. You guys, when you do that, that's ambitious, right? Like we're 404 episodes in. But hey, when you send us notes like that, it's just carry at carrynewhoff.com. You leave a rating or review. It makes such a huge difference. Uh, thank you so much. You guys are seriously the best. And I love hearing from you, especially now, because I'm still not back on the road with COVID and everything. And that's always been a highlight for me is popping into a city and meeting listeners. So when I get emails like the one I got from Pete in the UK, Thank you so much. And your reviews too. I read them all. So are you looking to grow your online campus and your online presence? Think the good answer to that should be yes. Well, you got two choices when it comes to digital. You or a team member can work day or night to keep up with social media and everything, including the strategy that constantly changes. Or you can hire Pro Media Fire and get an entire team of experts that keeps up on trends to help you grow online. So the choice is yours. Bury yourself and your team in the work or get a team to help your online campus and presence thrive. With ProMediaFire, complete social media management and digital growth is just a few clicks away. So as a listener of this podcast, you can get 10% off for life by going to promediafire.com forward slash carry. And ServeHQ has helped over 2,000 churches since 2015. Churches of all sizes use them to streamline their volunteer onboarding process, to run a digital remote growth track, to update their membership and assimilation experience, and codify their leadership development flow. What they do is they provide a powerful and simple-to-use online training experience, new digital messaging, step-by-step follow-up, and a training library that has over 800 videos with quiz questions all ready to go. Uh, you can hold real-time chats and safe, accountable space. All that is in one unified tool that your church needs to engage volunteers, members, and leaders. So again, you can save 10% off for life by using the code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, at servehq.church. You can learn more and start your free 14-day trial today. So excited to bring you Chris he slipped today. Chris is a dedicated entrepreneur with more than 15 startups under his belt. 
The latest being the highly successful PushPay, which grew from a million to a hundred million in revenue in four years. Chris's latest startup is Leader, that's Leader without the second E, a new and unique leadership development software company. Chris is helping form the strategic direction of Leader while still being engaged with other ventures. So we're going to talk about launching 15 startups, about the rocket rise of PushPay, and how to gain a competitive advantage with your team and more. Here is my conversation with Chris Heeslip. Chris, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you. Thanks for having me on, Kerry. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've known each other for a little while, but but when I was doing prep for the interview, 15 startups. Okay. I mean, I knew about PushPay and, and uh, you know, your new venture, but like 15 startups. So how, how, where did that come from? Well, I was actually in the process of uh, traveling back from the States to New Zealand on my very first startup. And I came across this magazine in the airport and it said, uh, the average billionaire started 19 companies before the one that made them a billionaire and so i thought well i better get started and so I <laughs> and just, you were how old just, when you read that i was in college oh that's awesome uh, and so i just started trying to trying to you know start companies and i thought it's all about you know hitting home runs you've got to just knock everything out of the park um and so just just keep trying things and and a lot of things didn't work what 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 did you try and what didn't work well, we, we uh, tried the original startup we did was in um, Christian music, importing that to New Zealand. And so we flew to the States to actually talk to DreamWorks and Big Idea to try and bring VeggieTales there to distribute that through uh, kind of big box retailers because it wasn't common and accessible to be able to find Christian resources apart from Christian bookshops. Right. So we were trying to get the rights for those uh, products in my first one. And, and that was great until the big box retailer decided to cut us out of the loop and talk directly to the suppliers. And so that business was done. Um, and then before 2001, we got into web hosting and, you know, some different businesses like that. We tried, I had one in packaging, um, so many different things, but after 14 failures, I got pretty despondent and I was like, man, this, I mean, 19 companies sounds easy, but after 14, I was starting to think it just, it just wasn't going to happen. And uh, one day I was reading my Bible and I, and I came across this passage that said, uh, do not wear yourself out to get rich, because if you chase after money, it will grow wings and fly away like a butterfly. And I just, it took me aback because it was really just Pretty direct, isn't it? Like that's, that's legit. Right. It was just describing exactly where I was in my life at that time. And so I started thinking and praying about what does that mean? The idea of something flying away. And what I, I think it meant to me at the time was, you know, I felt like God said, Chris, you've, you've started 14 companies for you. You've been trying to get something. You've been trying to, you know, do these things for your own benefit. Stop doing that and start something that's about giving, uh, literally giving and about making a difference. And, um, you know, it was just a few months after that, that I met Elliot and we started Pushbay. Why didn't you quit? Uh, that's a great question. I think it's a combination of stubbornness and some kind of sense of calling that I felt like that's what I was supposed to do. And I just continued to pursue that. And, uh, I, you know, had people encouraging me and saying, you know, you should be, you should be doing this. And so I think through the support of friends and family, that's what kept me going, even in the really hard times. Hmm. What was your self-talk like? 
Like there's a lot of leaders listening right now who are struggling with what they would perceive as failure, whether it's probably not 14 in a row. Like (laughs) that's a long streak, right? But they're like, wow, things are not where I thought they would be. We're a fraction of what we used to be. Things are hard. The world is still wobbly. What was the self-talk that, that, you know, good days and bad days that sort of got you down and then brought you back up? Well, I think you do define yourself by your results. And in some weird way, every leader has to produce results. Otherwise, you know, what are you measuring yourself against? And so um, when you start to have failure after failure, you start to say, maybe I'm a failure. Um, But I think the way that I've always approached my life is trying to distinguish between perceived failure and real failure. Mm. And, And what I mean by that is, you know, when you think about uh, the risk of parachuting, we think that there's this high risk of, you know, ending in some horrific death, but in, in all likelihood, you're more likely to die in a car crash than in a parachuting accident. Yeah. And is, is this, when you really think it through and you understand the logical part of it, the perceived fear of parachuting is so high and yet the perceived fear of driving a car is low. And so for me, as I, as I started to unpack this, and think about where I was and where I was trying to go, I thought about the fact that, you know, I'd given many years and, and lost money. Those things are perceived costs. They're not real costs. The real cost is the opportunity cost of building a career, doing something else. I mean, I had an accounting background. I could have been trying to build a career towards being a partner. To me, that's a real cost. But the cost of trying something and losing money or losing time um, was was a a great cost to pay. And, you know, you learn from your failures. I think that's the thing that helped me keep going as well was that every failure has in it the seeds of success. And if I look back at different startups that I did, you know, the first one was in um, Christian music uh, and working with churches to get distribution. The next one was, you know, an internet company around software. The next one was around intellectual property. The next one was, um, I had, I had a startup, you'll think this is funny, uh, that was, we had this idea, what if you could get a credit card that instead of getting points and cash back that you could actually donate those to a charity? Hmm. Um, and I thought, this is it, for sure, this business is, is going to succeed. And we built this out and talked to the Visa, MasterCard, the banks, and uh, they didn't want any part of it. Um, but it was a startup that I had built that was in in the credit card space. And then eight years later from that, here we are with Pushbay and each one of those failures actually added something that when we started building out Pushbay with online giving, that knowledge about credit cards wasn't wasted. It actually was a building block that the whole entire company was based on. Yeah, isn't that interesting how you keep going from place to place? Other than, um, you know, you got cut out as a middleman, you mentioned, and the credit card companies weren't interested. What were some of the things that by the time you 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 did push pay and now leader, which we'll talk about today, uh, what were what were some of the things that you're like, okay, this is why that didn't work. These this is this is like don't do this again. What were some don't do this again moments in in that first decade or so? Oh, so many. I mean, the first one is never do it by yourself. I mean, I had some businesses where I was the sole founder and it's too hard. And, 
you need you need someone to be in it with you with united sense of purpose and vision um and that creates other problems it solves some problems and creates other ones but i would just advise anyone you know leadership and building something is lonely and hard don't ever try and do it by yourself you know it's not worth it. Well, and and I, I don't want to stop you there, but uh, if you listen to most venture capitalists, that's exactly what they'd say. If you pitch a great idea, they're like, who's your co-founder? And they send you packing until you find one. And you did that for push pay. Okay, so that's lesson one, what, which is interesting. There's a lot of ministry and a lot of entrepreneurs, solo acts, solo acts. Yep. And, and to add to that, I think it's not just a co-founder, it's a team. I mean, you have mm. to have, I mean, so much of leadership is about, the individual who's the leader and the thing that's never talked about is the team behind that. Um, that's why you, you probably can see on my wall behind me, I have a, a jersey from the 1980 US hockey team um, and the fam- famous movie, you know, Miracle, which is, you know, a team of people working together with complete unity, you know, irrespective of the challenges, the lack of finances can outperform almost anyone, you know, and, uh, so I, I think you, you have to build a team of people who's as committed as you are and who has fully bought into what you're trying to achieve. It's, it's you know, it's critical. Hmm. Okay, so that was one of the lessons. Anything else from the don't do this again <laughs> department? I, I think if you can build something in stages, it's much better than taking a binary bet. Um, and what I mean by that is if, you, if you're trying to build an organization that is either going to fail or succeed, it's very hard to do that. You've got to, you know, for example, some of the packaging businesses I did were very much focused on, you know, either someone's going to license this piece of technology or they're not. Um, whereas, you know, when you build a software company, it's about building a company one customer at a time. And so your odds of success go up exponentially if you can approach things through building something slowly and methodically, adding value to people, they're going to want to, buy more products from you they're going to want to tell their friends about you it's a far it's, it takes longer but it's more likely to succeed well and then you get to push pay which you started when was push pay founded when did when did you and elliot find 2011 2011 so just about 10 years ago and it went from zero to a hundred million in four years which is crazy um i have to ask you what happened because all of a sudden you're like woof here we are that is a rocket ride but it took a long time to get the ingredients right. And, you know, we were investing in the company, putting, uh, you know, the product together. And it was really a struggle. And uh, in the end of 2013, we ran out of money. And at the very last moment, we, we, we actually couldn't make payroll. The very last moment, we had someone come along and, uh, and Peter, who, who led the investment in, in Push Bay, and say, hey, I believe in you. I mean, you're this close to being successful and yet you can't see it. And I think that's a lesson to so many leaders that oftentimes you're not, you look at your scenario and you say, you know, it's, it's hopeless. And yet you're five out of six numbers on the combination lock. You just need that one more. And so, so when the you first two up, years were really tough, were they at push pay? Oh, the first, yeah. First three or four years were really tough to, to try and uh, figure out where we were going uh, we were in New Zealand and mm. trying to, you know, build a business in the States, uh, waking up at three o'clock in the morning to, you know, call churches on the East Coast. I mean, it was, it was really hard. Hmm. 
Okay. And then what happened like in that moment where you couldn't meet payroll? That's so funny. I've got deja vu for those regular listeners, longtime listeners. I mean, Scott Harrison basically has the same story, right? You know, Scott. And he's like, yep, we were almost done at Charity Water. We were ready to like pack it in and go home. And one guy walked in and said, don't give up and wrote him a check. And then it took off. Um, but a very similar dynamic. So walk us through that and and what happened to turn it around and start that rocket ride from a million to a hundred million. Well, I, I think it, someone came in and said, look, I've got a playbook. You know, I know how to do this. You know, let me show you how to take it from where you are to where you want to go. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of that moment where when the student is ready, the teacher appears. <laughs> um, and, and uh, we, we, met him he you know said look you know we've got some ideas i remember the first board meeting he said we're going to invest you know two hundred thousand dollars into this one initiative and i i was like look we we literally just ran out of money i don't think we should be doing this 200 don't you know you could buy a house in places for two hundred thousand dollars i mean we we were just you know so green and someone who comes along and says no actually you need to be thinking about growth and have a growth mindset rather than stop thinking about not failing and start thinking about how to grow this thing. And and that really just unlocked a whole new perspective for us. Oh, wow. And what were some of the key changes you made? Like, can you talk about what you ended up investing in or how that became a transformative moment? Like, what were some of the next steps? Yeah. So one was, for example, we were using an outsourced processing company at that time, and it was a really bad customer experience. Mm-hmm. And people would have to go through a whole entire different you know, onboarding, they'd have to fill in a lot of different information. And uh, he said, look, we should bring that in house. And I said, well, setting that up internally will cost, you know, $200,000. But it was worth it from a customer experience perspective to make it so that that onboarding was so seamless and so easy. And uh, it took, instead of going from two weeks to take someone through the onboarding process, it now took a few hours. And, you know, those incremental improvements, when you add them up over time, uh, are transformative. So we think, well, you know, this one thing won't make a difference, but it's, it's not one thing. It's A plus B plus C plus D together in its entirety is transformational, but by itself, one thing is, is you know, is not. And so it's the combination of that kind of growth mindset and, and exponential growth that can really, you know, help someone to say, okay, I, I can see this now. I can see how this can actually, uh, we, we can succeed by executing on this plan. I think that's such a good point. And it's something I didn't pay enough attention to until the last five or six years. But it's, tell me if I've got this right, because I, I think this is an important leadership point. So what you're saying is if I wanted to be a client of PushPay six, seven years ago, the old process might've taken me two weeks to figure out. And yet a lot of people who are like, yeah, I want to, I want to subscribe. And then they just give up. They abandon it. They quit. You know, I filled this form out three times. It didn't work. It didn't submit. It went to the wrong email, whatever. That's the kind of stuff you're talking about. Absolutely. And if you mm. can just, instead of trying to, I think there's this idea that we see in the world because we're conditioned by renovation shows, you know, you start the program, there's a mess, you watch the show and 30 minutes later, there's this perfect house. We think that everything we have to do has to be that impactful. And actually, there's a sense of pride in that, that it's not the big bang decisions and programs that we implement that make the difference. It's actually a series of incremental changes. 
And it takes humility to say, how do I make this better? How do I think about this from a customer's perspective, from someone else's perspective? And and you and I both know some of the, the largest churches in America have thought about in such incredible detail about the experience of someone from the time they try and get into your parking lot to the time that they leave. Right. Now, Apple, when they built an iPhone, you open that up and and someone told me once they invested months and months and months and, and hundreds of millions of dollars into that experience, that first 10 seconds when you open an iPhone box and you get this iPhone for the first time. And and large churches are starting to do the same. And so the question is in, in your business and your organization, what's that similarity that you need to really find this magic moment and make it such a great experience for people? Because in our business, that first experience, yes, I want to move forwards with PushPay and then going through this long process, filling in forms, you know, providing all kinds of information. It, it, you know, when you start thinking about that and breaking it down, you say, this is not a, it's not a great experience. No, it's so interesting, you know, because around that same time, I was still the lead pastor at Connexus Church, which I founded, and we were taking online giving in a very serious way. And as you know, as an accountant and somebody in this field, like Canadian banking regulations are really complicated. In America, it's like press a button and you're in. In Canada, it was like a 17-page form. And I remember the staff meeting where I said to our team, I said, look, this is either going to be really hard for us or it's going to be really hard for our congregation. And I would rather hire someone to sit behind the scenes, make it really simple on the user interface, give me your name, your phone number, and then have someone call them the next day and say, can I have 20 minutes and just walk through with you? Okay, what's your bank? What's a transit number? What's this? What's that? And that's what we did. And uh, by the time I left, I think 70% of our giving was online in 2015. And when the pandemic hit, like 80 or 90% was online. So it was an easy switch. And then funny, you know, things... Last year at my company, we kind of realized we do course sales and, you know, we sell a lot of courses over the course of the year, but I realized we had the same problem. It was like the people were getting double charged because they didn't know how to remove it from their cart and we'd always give them their money back. But I'm like, guys, this is not a good experience. And so we are in the process. We've done some work, but we have a lot to do of just cleaning up that customer interface so that when you interact with us, it's super easy, super simple, super seamless. And um, I think that's that's a hidden lesson a lot of people miss. Anything else on that? Um, that customer interface thing is huge. Any any comments on that? Well, I, I think that's the key part of business today is who's taking on the complexity and the risk of any transaction. And if if you're making it hard for people to interact with you, whether that's as a church, and whether that's in giving, signing up for, if you just make it hard for people to sign up for a group. People aren't going to do it because we used to You're like, to people have- aren't interested in groups. It's like, no, they are. They're just, they're making it hard. And we think we're competing, you know, competing in the loosest word with other churches, but it's not. The experience that we're conditioned to is set by Instagram and Facebook and, you know, these incredible companies that have invested millions of dollars into their experience. And so when we can't, when someone comes to your organization, they're benchmarking your technology, your experience with those things that they're, they're used to in the everyday life. And so you, you, you have to stop comparing it with other organizations in the same industry and start thinking about how does it compare with someone in a completely different industry that's the best in class. Hmm. Well, let's talk about rapid growth. Uh, there are a number of leaders listening who are going through that at their church, in their company, in whatever they're doing. 
And I mean, you know, a million to a hundred million in four years is crazy. So in, in some ways it's great. In some ways it's unsustainable. What happened to the company in the process as you grew that quickly? What were some of the dynamics at play? Well, I think uh, when you start setting really ambitious goals, you start having to hire and recruit and induct people against this plan that you've put together. And so if you're not careful, it can become about achieving a number and you can lose sight of what really matters, which is providing a great service or serving people in the right way. Um, and so if you think about a continuum, some people go to one end, which is so far about the numbers, so far about, you know, looking at every last metric, you can lose sight of the fact that, you know, it's really about life change and delivering value to people. And on the other end, we can be too soft and too easy and so focused on those stories that we don't have the metrics in place to tell us whether things are going well or not going well. And so I think it's it's a really challenging uh, approach because, you know, if you think about a company going from one to 10, that's a 10 times, things have grown 10x. Mm. And then to go from 10 to 100, it's another 10x growth. So to go from 100 to 1000 is 10x again. But it's it, so that early stage, your, your organization changes so quickly. And uh, you, as a leader, have to realize what is the most important thing at that part of the journey. And what what is the thing that I need to do, the thing I need to learn. And so for me in those early days, it was about learning how to lead people. I'd never done this before. No one told me this is how you lead an organization. And so mostly I read it through books, online, through blogs, and and through seeking people out. But it was all self-taught. And I think if if you learn as a leader, you can be forgiven for so many different things. And so the one thing I always said to my team is, I'm going to turn up and be the most prepared person in any room, in any situation. Um, Because as the leader of the organization, I set the tone. And so if I've done the research, I can challenge you that you should have done it too. But if I turn up and I don't know what I'm talking about, other people are not going to follow you and and have the respect for you. And so I think such a key part is reading books and and really uh, learning and growing yourself as a leader so that people, you know, emulate that as well. How did you uh, find talent? Because that was a whole lot of new staff too, right? Like, so you went from in that same four-year window from how many staff to how many staff? Uh, We went from about 20 to about 400 people. Mm Mm-hmm. That's another rocket ride. What uh, and I, I know that that all, that's never smooth. What? Um, how did you find that many people that quickly? Like hiring a hundred people a year? Like how did how did you how did you figure that out? Uh, with with great difficulty. I mean, it's it's the single hardest challenge that we all face. And um, I think one of the the mental tools you learn uh, to think about is as a leader leading an organization that's growing quickly is stop trying to solve 10 problems and make one decision that solves the 10 problems. You know, and this is the theory behind, you know, people who wear the same outfit every day. I don't need to make seven decisions, one a day for a week. I can just make one decision and I've already determined ahead of time. And so I think, you know, if you in an organization can make one decision that solves a lot of downstream problems, you know, that becomes really critical. And so, you know, who you hire determines 
the outputs you get from a particular team uh, as as the leader. And so oftentimes it's about hiring a person who can either bring a team with them or right. who can help to, you know, they know what they're looking for. But if, if you say, I've got to hire 10 people, you're going to wear yourself out and get frustrated because, you know, finding 10 people is really hard, but finding one person as the leader is a lot easier. Mm. And so that's what you did. You just found a couple of key people and let them build teams. Was that the decision that kind of eliminated a lot of other decisions? Yeah, I, I think there's kind of three parts. One is okay. that. Number two is trying to develop people internally. I think mm. trying to find people who have a good, you know, who have some ability to step into a role. And then number three, we, we tried to hire people from the outside. Um, and largely we were unsuccessful at that. And we, you know, we're in a situation where we were able to hire people from, you know, just these great companies, Amazon and Microsoft and, and whatever else. Um, but actually, most of the time, those people didn't work out. And the I think outsiders left. Out- so when you say internal, like, how does that work? Because this is a problem for a lot of leaders. So you have 20 staff. How do 20 become 400 without hiring externally? Well, so it's, it's, you know, trying to figure out what is the, it's trying to sequence it and say, right, what is the next thing that we need to hire for to make sure that things don't slow down? And so um, if, if you have a great leader in place in a team, that becomes easy. It's just about scaling what's already working. But in some cases, like I remember, I think we we're about 60 people. Um, I went to the board and said, look, we really need to hire someone as our director of learning and development. And uh, they said, what's that? And I said, well, you know, we need to build culture and we, you know, we're a learning company. You know, we, we had great programs. We would buy our staff books and we were one of the first five companies in North America to uh, do LinkedIn learning for business. And so there was just a lot of things that we were doing, but they weren't uh, systematized sufficiently. And so I wanted to build a culture of learning and development and I needed someone to really, again, instead of me driving all of those things, I needed someone to step in and say, right, Chris has got some ideas. We need to systematize this across the organization so that everyone feels like they're growing and learning. And so we we promoted someone into that role uh, who was just fantastic. He was in the marketing team at the time. And so this was a step up for him. But I mean, the difference that made in our organization was just incredible because now every start, you know, we, we used to do uh, weekly standups mm-hmm. and I know most, some organizations don't, don't even do them, maybe do them monthly, but having your whole company come together to talk about culture for half an hour or an hour is the best use of time that you can possibly do. And so we would, they were happening, but they weren't optimized. And so I said, look, can you run this? Can you plan this out and make sure that we talk about our values? You know, we had five core values. We want to talk about them, you know, once every week over a five-week period and rotate through. We would have senior leaders come in and and pick one of the values and talk about that uh, because it wasn't just me talking about Mm -hmm. it. It was actually the, the leaders in the organization talking about it. And so when we just started to systematize some of those decisions, the feedback from the staff was just incredible. And that's what Horst Schultze did as well, founder of Ritz-Carlton, right? He would he would just go through all of his values and his core principles. And when they were done, they would just start again the next week and kind of rotate through. Let's talk about culture because culture is very difficult to scale. And you're right, bringing outside people in, bringing them from other... You know, if you hire someone from Microsoft or Google, they're going to bring Google 
you know, Google has a real culture and so does Microsoft. So how do you enculturate people quickly? I have found that to be one of the greatest challenges and one of the greatest opportunities in leadership as I've built teams, you know, on a much smaller scale, but still it's, it's an issue. People, people have family cultures too, uh, and as how they do things. So how did you build culture? Well, I think the first thing to do is to define what culture is, because I think a lot of people use the term culture. And if I said, you know, tell me about your culture, they might say some platitudes. But Enron said that their number one core value was trust and integrity, you know, so just saying that you have culture isn't enough. And so I love Seth Godin's uh, statement, which is, you know, people around here do things like this, you know, that that to me encapsulates what culture is. And over time, I even learned a little more about it. I read a book uh, by Bill Walsh called The The Score Takes Care of Itself. Hmm. And uh, and his book is about, you know, focusing on behavior and driving behavioral norms. And so now I believe that culture is the connection between your beliefs and your behaviors. And, you know, we've got to go to first principles before you can say, how do you build culture? So, you know, beliefs are things that, you know, we believe to be true because we believe them to be true. So we believe in excellence. We believe in innovation. We believe in, you know, generosity with some of our core values. Um, And Peter Drucker has a great way of saying this, which is, would you hold to these beliefs if they became a competitive disadvantage? And when you start talking to shareholders and you say that, they, their eyes kind of glaze over because, you know, when you say this, there can be a cost sometimes to holding these values, but this is who we are and we can't change who we are. Like we are going to be who we are and we're going to hold to these things because we hold them to be self-evident, right? Like, you know, that's, this is just part of who we are. And so when it comes to beliefs, you can never have wrong beliefs. You can just have beliefs that are your beliefs in your company that people buy into. And then those translate into behaviors, which you can measure and are tangible. And so you can measure, are we you know, an excellent organization? Do we believe in generosity? And if so, how do we express that? And so one of the models that we've built at Leader now is I didn't want to just create beliefs and behaviors. I wanted to create a word picture which explains to a brand new staff member how they should be able to act. So for example, uh, one of our our core values is uh, we have a blue collar DNA. Hmm. Now it's a mix between a belief and a behavior that's knitted together in this word picture that you can now imagine, what does it look like to have a blue collar DNA? You You can see it because of the way it's put together. Or another one is we operate as a championship team right? It's a belief. We believe in the power of teamwork, but it's also a behavior that, hey, if you're, if you want to play by yourself, this is not the place for you because here we're about the power of team. And so finding ways to express that together in this united way between beliefs and behaviors is, is the best way that we can express our values to people. And then you can assess whether your organization is actually living up to those. What does a blue collar DNA mean? It means a few things. It means, you know, uh, we find a way, right? We, we, we don't accept that the status quo is the status quo. You know, you think about uh, how life was 100 years ago and what it meant to uh, live in a certain way. And uh, I think a lot about the, the, the way that the world has changed over the last 100 years. 
the fact that today so much work is knowledge work and back then so much work was about getting your hands dirty and uh, getting things done yourself and not delegating responsibility uh, you would you would you know step up and say this is me and my family and we're gonna you know find a way to achieve what we're trying to achieve um, we <laughs> We created even another step further in terms of like, I love the idea of having wood, these wood pitchers that that explain that. So the wood picture we have is like a lunch pail, you know, the old blue collar, I'm going to the mines, you know. So we gave all our staff a lunch pail to remind them of this kind of blue collar DNA. And so I think um, uh, expressing it in that way that people can see the tangible nature of the values and then showing them, you know, through an example, I think is just so powerful. What happened to you in that rocket ride? Um, like so many leaders these days, I know you and I have talked uh, different times over the years. That was a grueling, unsustainable pace. So what happened to Chris? <laughs> uh, it, it's exhausting. I mean, uh, trying, to, trying to keep up with the growth of the organization, the number of hours that it takes, uh, the number of new people coming on your team, um, the amount of travel required. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's really hard as a leader. And I think anyone who tells you that that, that stuff is easy is, is lying. It's, <laughs> it's really hard. And so I think uh, one of the things that happened is as the organization continues to grow, uh, you know, your, the skills and the, the mindset that you come into an organization with, oftentimes you, you might have skills that help get an organization from say 10 to a hundred or a hundred to 400. But at some point, it, you know, the organization can outgrow people. And I think it takes a lot of self-awareness to say, you know what, like actually the best thing here is that, you know, the, the next leg of the, of the relay race is someone else's to run because, I'm not. I'm no longer the best person for this because I I love changing things. I'm addicted to changing things, and you know we don't need people. We don't need a CEO to come in and change things anymore. <laughs> We're in a great place. We need someone to scale some things. And uh, if I stay, I'm actually going to try and tinker with things that shouldn't be tinkered with. And I think it it just kind of dawned on me through that uh, time that uh, I wasn't the person to lead it to the next level. Do you, two questions. First, how did you come to that realization? And secondly, um, well, let's start there. How did you come to that realization? Because that's a big aha moment. I might not be the person. I think it's, it's a part of it is, do you enjoy what you're doing? And obviously there's a part of every job that you don't enjoy. But I started, you know, to build a product and meet with customers and when you get to a certain size and scale, you, you know, your time and availability to do those things is very limited. And it's it's not a negative thing. It's just the realization that you have a lot of obligation. You have board meetings to go to. You have in investors to meet with. You have staff that you need to constantly meet with. And and your, the, the skill sets, the things that I was good at were no longer the things that the organization needed. And so my time, when I look at my calendar, I was doing a lot of stuff that wasn't in my enjoyment zone. And so it's, it starts to surface in that way as well. 
Yeah. And, and that leads beautifully into my next question, which you've kind of half answered, but like being outside of your sweet spot, not doing the things that you love, starting things, changing things, tinkering, meeting with those clients, watching, you know, all of that. Do you think that contributed to your fatigue? Oh, absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. It wasn't just the hours. It wasn't just like, okay. It was just the difference in the quality of, of, of work that you were doing. I think it's cumulative. It's all of those things together, you know, added up over time, start to, you know, make you feel fatigued and, and burned out. So I think, you know, if you're in your sweet spot, can you work long hours? You know, absolutely you can, you know, but, um, you know, as, as that continues to drift, if we can use that word, what happens is that the account starts to go into the negative and then eventually you have to pay pay that back in some way. Mm. How did you know you were burned out? Or would you say you were? Like what, where, 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 where did the penny drop on that one? Um, I think uh, probably, and, and maybe you've heard this from other leaders, I think it wasn't until afterwards, mm. until you, you step out of the hyper growth, you take a moment and you reflect and you say, wow, like, you know, uh, that was a tough season and you don't realize it at the time because you just, you lose when you're in that season, you lose all context and your ability to see things objectively. Um, and so I think, you know, people share things with you and say, Hey, you know, like, man, you, you really put on a lot of weight. <laughs> <laughs> if you have good friends, they tell you that, you know, and they're like, Hey, you just, you look unhealthy and you don't look like you're enjoying it. And, uh, you know, it seems like some of the joy that you had is gone. And then you start to realize, oh, I need to, I need to really take a step back and evaluate some things. I remember, uh, and I'm sure you'll remember this, but backstage at Charlotte a few years ago where you and I hung out for most of the afternoon. And I just remember as somebody who has burned out and I just remember feeling tremendous compassion for you. You could see the fatigue, you could feel the, see the exhaustion and, and it's just hard. So you made the decision to step back and you took how much off before, like how much time off before founding leader? Not a lot, but also <laughs> it probably sounds hypocritical, not a lot, but and you can cut this out by the way, if it doesn't help the narrative. But I think it was for me, when you start something, the amount of hours and it, like the amount of hours when you start is, is not it's a small amount of hours. It's a lot of thinking. Mm -hmm. And so the thinking started, I get it. But the, the actual work didn't, if that makes sense, because it takes time to really process what a, a new startup looks like. And you can't, you know, nine ladies can't make a baby in a, in a month. So you have to, there's a certain process you go through to think through this is a creative process, you know, that you have to go through. And so I started it straight away, but it took time to, you know, build it up into an actual organization. It was incubating. What what did you do to get well? What did you do to say, okay, I'm moving in a new phase of my life, much healthier. It did. I know we talked to each other a few months ago. You've been giving me very valuable feedback on my next book. So thank you for that. And I'm like, dude, you look great. Like drop some weight. You, you look, you look healthy. You look like just great. And so you obviously changed your state. What, what helped with that? Well, <laughs> I caught up with a friend and he said, you must be the only person in the world who lost weight during the pandemic because the rest <laughs> of us were putting it on. Um, 
But I, and maybe there's others, but I think in that season of, you know, everything stops, the travel stops, that uh, you're able to, to take a step back. And so I think the joy starts to come back again, not straight away. It takes time, but the, the, you start, you stop feeling numb. You start, you know, enjoying the little things more. You enjoy the time with your kids. You're not constantly thinking about work when you're supposed to be, you know, playing with your kids. I mean, I think we're all guilty of that to some degree. Um, and, and the freedom that, you know, comes with, you know, when you when you build and scale something, as I say, there's demands on your time. And when you when you step out of that, you have a, a new level of freedom that is uh, difficult in a large organization because so much of what you have to do is decided for you. What are some rhythms that you would say from where you sit right now are going to be non-negotiable for you? Um, where you're like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore, or I'm going to start doing this so that I stay healthy. And I'm thinking about health because there's a lot of, you know, 2021, not everybody got a little bit of a break in 2020. And so there's a lot of leaders who are running dead tired right now, looking for new rhythms. What would you say? Okay. Knowing what I know now, here's some fresh rhythms for the next season. That's a great question. I think the first thing is you got to get honest with yourself and say, do you like where you're at? Mm. Uh, you know, because if, as I say, if you, you can go through a lot, if you have a calling and you're where you're supposed to be, and there's this heart connection with what you're doing. Um, and so it starts there. I think the second thing is, you know, for me, I've always been pretty clear on my priorities. And uh, obviously, you know, God comes first, uh, which, you know, means being around uh, other people you know, godly people, having people speak into my life, connecting with, you know, people who, who mentor me, uh, in a, in a formal way. Um, and even during some of those really tough times, uh, a couple of those mentors gave me, you know, just words of encouragement that helped me see things in a new way. Um, and so, you know, putting God first, number two is, is obviously, uh, my marriage and, you know, I've always, um, had a, a date night, Wednesday nights, uh, you know, don't call me. I, like the building can be burning down, the business can be burning down. You won't be able to get me. I mean, just you know. And and what happens is when you make that a non-negotiable, it's amazing how many other people and things move around it. Hmm. And when you start flexing just one percent, it's amazing how how things start to creep into that. And so it's just a non-negotiable. People know that and communicate that time with the kids. And someone said to me, you know. Uh, my kids are young, but the things that the kids will remember is the little things that you do consistently. And so every Saturday morning, I take my boys to get donuts. Uh, obviously, we're not from the States. We're from New Zealand. And so we don't have donuts as, as much there. But it's just a little thing that's, you know, that's repeated over and over. And you start to build those really special memories uh, on Sunday, on Saturday mornings. And then I think the other thing is just having great people around you, um, not people who just consume from you and suck from you, but people who uh, don't want anything from you. And whether you're in ministry or business or you're a senior business leader, the most refreshing thing in the world is having someone who wants nothing from you and who says, I just want to be around you because you're my friend. That is <laughs> and, very wonderful and rare. Mm-hmm. It's so rare because at the more successful you are, the more people want something from you. I mean, you must find that too, but it's, it's, 
It's just having friends who have been around for 15 years who just shoot straight with you too, who just, hey, man, I just think you're getting a bit of a big head. You got to pull your, <laughs> pull yourself together. <laughs> having people who have the ability to speak into you because they've known you and they can see when things are good and bad and who aren't afraid to tell you the truth, it's, it's so hard to find those people. When you find them, you've got to be very intentional about keeping them, keeping them around. It's good advice. Really, really good advice. And really hard, really hard in ministry, but really hard in leadership, period. I have a few of those friends locally, and uh, some of them live a thousand miles away. But if you have a handful of those or even a small handful, uh, you're a very, very fortunate person. Um, let's talk about your new venture, Leader. So what, what are you doing in that space? Tell us a little bit about where you're at now. And then I want to talk about technology, the future, and because really you run tech companies these days, like in many ways you yes. do a push pay, really sort of fintech and, and now leader in a different space. And I want to talk about the future technology online, all that stuff. Great. Yeah. Well, I think um, we started running conferences at push pay and we, and we thought, you know, there's this huge opportunity at the intersection of, uh, for lack of a better term, business in the church. And by business, I mean, not just the idea of making money, but like business principles and um, uh, large tech companies often run conferences to, you know, invest into, uh, into their customers. And so Ali and I, you know, had this idea, what if we could bring the best business leaders in America to help grow the church? And uh, no one else was doing that. And so we said, look, let's, let's get John Maxwell to come. Let's get Scott Harrison to come. Let's get Seth Godin to come, you know, let's get Patrick Lencioni to come and talk about how to grow and scale an organization. And so uh, the feedback from people who attended those conferences was really something special. They said, this is, this is not, it wasn't for everyone, but there was a group of people who said, this is something that I really needed to hear to take my leadership to the next level. And so I, I kind of had this idea, this, you know, we started at the top of this call talking about investing into people and, and serving. And to me, that's where the conference came from. It was about serving churches and giving back. And so as we started thinking about this new business is how do we help church leaders specifically, you know, grow and scale their organizations. And what we found in, in researching the space was that there was five core habits that every successful leader did. The first one was they uh, recognized every one of their staff members for their unique uh, strengths. The second one was that they had a coaching slash one-to-one with their staff every, at least every other week. Number three is you've got to have clear written down goals. It's amazing how many of your staff don't know whether they're winning today or this week, and especially millennials. They want to know when they go home, did I win? And are we winning as a team? Um, number four was I want written down feedback. You know, like I'm not afraid of hearing how I'm doing, but please tell me, like, am I doing a good job, a bad job? How, how can I do better? And then the last one is uh, every staff member wants to have some type of career development plan. And the best leaders are not trying to hold on to staff, but help grow them and promote them into their future destiny. And so you can do all of those things without any software. You can write it down, you can put them on you know, pieces of paper and, and on cards. But what we found is through using technology, it just 
automates the important so that you never forget to do these five things to help grow in and invest your staff. Ah, so it's software. I mean, I knew this ahead of time, but it's basically software to help you do those things. And I think a lot of leaders, you're reading their mail because they're like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm 0 for 5 or 2 for 5 or 3 for 5. It's probably pretty rare to find people who are 5 to 5, 5 out of 5 on that. Well, and oftentimes we'll do them, but we won't share them. I mean, I talked to a church leader the other day and they did every personality test known to man. And I said, hey, that's great. But like, if I'm working with you on a project, where would I find that to know that you're an Enneagram three and this is how we should. And she said, well, you know, it's in your personnel file. I said, well, that's great, but there's no way for us, for me to leverage your strengths if there's not a way for me to find that information quickly and easily. And so we love in hiring to screen for these things, but actually when we start putting teams together, you know, we're not getting the best from each team member if we don't have that information really inaccessible. It's interesting because you're developing software, right? That is going to help people with that. And that's what Pushpay did. It was software that, that helped with giving, et cetera. The church has a really, and, and some businesses too, honestly. I saw a lot of businesses over the last year kind of get online from their 1996 website to something remotely, <laughs> you know, recent, which is good. Uh, but a lot of small businesses and a lot of churches really struggle with technology. Um, I'd love for you to just speak into that strange relationship that we seem to have with it. What are your observations, your insights around that, Chris? Well, look, I think it's there's such a huge opportunity to leverage technology to be more effective, right? And I think we, as the church, you know, have over time, if, if we talk holistically about the church, have really abdicated a lot of the leadership in the space around leading and having world-class technology. And so I think I think there's two parts. Number one, you know, there's not world-class vendors serving the church today. I mean, you know, you look at almost every part of how a church operates. There should be someone who is super passionate about the church, loves the mission of the church, and is saying, I want to help you get better at this one area. And, you know, technology is just an accelerator. I mean, it's not it's not going to, if you've got a bad culture and you add technology, now you're just going to have a bad culture with technology. So technology doesn't solve the problems, but technology can uh, help to, if you're doing something, it can supercharge it and take it to the next level. If your giving is good and you add online giving or mobile giving, I mean, it's going to be great. <laughs> but if you, if you have bad giving and people aren't giving and you add technology, it's not going to make a difference. And so... I think I'm just passionate about the fact that all technology for churches should be truly world-class because we're used to that experience. We have that experience every day in using, you know, shopping apps and Instacart and, you know, Instagram and everything else. And when it comes to checking our kids in, it's not a world-class experience. And so the question is why? Like we, we should be leading the way because what we do is so important that we can't afford to give someone a bad experience. And experience today is one of the most important things. You know, people people look for a great experience in anything. And so it's on us to create that. And as churches, holistically, we should demand that from our vendors because if we do that, I think people will start to respond to what we're looking for. That's a really good point. I've had a number of colleagues, friends of mine, who've been talking about that, that the church seems to be in a weird bubble because... 
you know, denominations are great. They have a role, but they can't. And you're right. We're being compared by people we're trying to reach to Instagram, uh, Facebook, to, uh, you know, and everybody's got great branding and everything. One of the values of my company, it was the same value at Connexus, is battle mediocrity. You know, I'm allowing what is good to stand in the way of what it could be great. And I think that's a really good challenge is to think through that. And I'm grateful. What What is some of the pushback? Like when you when you meet with leaders and say, hey, we have this opportunity at leader or, you know, we have this thing called push pay. What is the the pushback that you get from leaders who are resistant to embracing technology like that? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of a couple of things. One, I think people uh, believe that they shouldn't need technology to do it. So there's just a belief, you know, when it was giving, it was, hey, people should, you know, just give. You know, and, and so why do we need to make it easy for them? You know, they should want to do it, you know, like it's it's on them. And I think a similar uh, response comes in on on uh, investing in and growing your staff. Uh, people say, well, it should be the employee's responsibility to develop themselves. And I think it's 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 not incorrect. It's just incomplete. And so by making it easier, we're just inviting people into taking that next right step. And if we make it easy, people are more likely to do it and perhaps do it sooner. And so the the biggest barrier in adopting technology is just simply the belief that it doesn't matter. You know, and, and I, I say to people, we have world-class project management tools, and yet we have no software to develop our people. Like, <laughs> That's wrong. Like mm-hmm. to me, that's a that's just not how it should be, and yet that's the default that we that we end up in is like, well, we have you know the software that's world class that you know helps us manage our tasks you know down to the eighteenth detail, and yet you know people should just develop themselves. Like to me, that's where the gap exists. That it's it's not technology; it's using technology for the right and the important things that we face. Well, nobody has a crystal ball, but I'd love to pick your brain because I love to do this with guests over the last couple of years. But we are probably emerging into the post-pandemic world in the next little while. I'd love to get your take on church and business. So when you look ahead a year or whatever, but masks are off, almost kind of like they are in New Zealand right now, even though the country is still closed. Masks are off. People are back in the public. What do you think is going to be different about the church? And what do you think is going to be different about business? Well, I, I thought a lot about the church, and so you have to excuse my business language. But you know, when I think about uh, how churches should engage with people, to me, there's really three things that people are looking for that the attendees are looking for. Number one, we're looking for community. How do I find community? Number two, how do I find content? And number three, how do I have some kind of experience? Um, and I think over the last few years, what you've seen is some of the churches that have emerged and grown quickly have really focused on one or all three of them in some cases. You know, I can think of, you know, uh, like like North Point is just a phenomenal church. I've had a great opportunity to, to spend time with uh, some of the leadership team there and, and they managed to achieve all three. Um, and so then the question becomes, how do you achieve or through which venue or which initiative do you achieve these things? If someone wants community, how do we get people to small groups? How in, the, in a pandemic, how are we creating community for people? And content, you know, hey, is online, online church is a, 
a great way to learn and to get content, right? Like a lot of the Sunday morning service was about, you know, hearing preaching and teaching and and growing in our faith. Uh, and then the third part was this idea of an experience. Mm-hmm. And our, the, over the last 10 to 15 years, the biggest growth in software and in, in, you know, even phones themselves has been in this idea of an experience. And you hear about people using this word experience over and over and over and over again. And so I think you can create community, at least for a period through Zoom groups and other stuff. I think you can create content through online church. But here's the question. How do you create an experience? I have no clue on that. But I think that's never going to change. And so to me, instead of looking at what's going to change, we look at what's going to stay the same and what's never going to change. People are always going to want to get content. They're always going to want to have community and they're always going to want to have some kind of experience. Those things are going to be true a hundred years from now, as true as they are today. And so the question to think through is how do you create those in a pandemic world? And is that the same for business as well? Those same three filters or different filters for business, you would say? I, I think very similar. Yeah. I think it's about product too and, and value. You know, I think there's a ROI equation that exists in a business context um, that you have to answer for. When you look into the future, what's one thing that excites you? One thing that worries you? Um, I'm, I'm just naturally an optimistic person. I've had to learn how to become more realistic, uh, you know, and being, being a leader in a hyper growth company forces you to get really realistic fast because you find the things that are broken because those things are holding you back. But I just think that uh, the greatest companies that are going to exist have not yet been started. Mm-hmm. And I think the greatest churches that are going to exist 10 years from now haven't even been started. And so to me, there's ways of doing ministry and ways of creating businesses that we haven't even thought of today. And so nat- you know, uh, naturally, we should be optimistic about the future because it's, there's so much today that exists that, didn't ha- that we didn't have 20, 30 years ago. So I think that's optimistic. I think part of the concern is just simply on you know, uh, how do you engage in culture in a way to uh, get your point across without being canceled or without, you know, furthering the divide that happens. Um, and, and I don't know the answer to that, but, you know, culture is so powerful and you can't change culture. You know, you can try and engage the culture, but, but how do you do it in that way? It's, you know, it's a great challenge that we all face and every business and every organization, you know, is how to engage and engage with the culture to, uh, further our mission and our cause. And it's, it's difficult. Hmm. Well, Chris, this has been fascinating. Tell us where they can find more about you and leader. Absolutely. Yeah. My website is chrisheeslip.com and leader is just leader without the E L E A D R. Uh, and we would love to help you grow, uh, your people and your team. And, and Carrie, Hey, let me ask you one question before yeah, yeah. we go here. Tell us about your book and, and when it's coming out. I mean, you were kind enough to uh, let me uh, read an advanced copy and I was just blown away by some of the content that you've put together. So when is it coming out and, and what is it about? Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Chris. Yeah, you were really helpful. I, I talked to a number of like hyper growth CEOs and uh, people in senior leadership and middle management. Um, it's called Do What You're Best At When You're At Your Best. It'll be out September 14th. 
And it's all about getting time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. So I've done this course for a few years in this talk called The High Impact Leader. And rather than putting that into 90 minutes, we turned it into an entire book with downloads, charts, graphs, basically a life management system so that uh, those of us who feel a little bit tired in leadership don't, and we keep out of burnout. So uh, it's, uh, it's just a book to help you get time, energy, and priority. So it's out September 14th. And uh, yeah, you're in the credits. I don't know whether you knew that or not. You'll get an advanced <laughs> copy when, when it comes out. So, Well, I love some of the practical elements that you shared in the book about how to help leaders in the stage and a lot of what we talked about today. So yeah. I can't Well, energy get- management, you and I, we really talked about that. And you know what I describe now in the book is a green zone and those three to five hyperproductive hours in a day that we all get and, and how to do that. So thank you for your feedback and thank you for making it better. It really... Really, really made a difference. And uh, thanks for asking the question. No worries. My, I know my feedback can be a little blunt, so you never know if it's going to be appreciated or not. <laughs> it was fantastic. I, I think you actually gave the feedback while you were in that recovery mode because uh, yep. I was doing a massive rewrite of it uh, the summer of 2020. So anyway, here we are all these years later and it's coming out. There's a two and a half year labor of love, sometimes love. Uh, it's a labor, <laughs> as you know. Uh, Chris, thanks so much. Really appreciate you. Thanks, Kerry. Well, if you enjoyed that episode, you may want to check out the show notes. They're over at kerrynewhoff.com forward slash 404. We've got everything we talked about in the episode as well as transcripts. I don't know about you, but sometimes if there's a particular meaningful uh, section that I want to go back and reference, I just download the transcripts. They're free. And then I do a quick keyword search and you can find it pretty much instantly as opposed to where was that in the podcast and scrolling back. Anyway, that's why we do show notes. And of course, our partners help you with that. So If you haven't yet checked out ServeHQ, make sure you do that. Get their free 14-day trial. Use the code CARRY to get 10% off for life. And ProMediaFire, you can get help with your social media management and digital growth strategy and get 10% off for life at ProMediaFire.com forward slash CARRY. Well, it's just about time for what I'm thinking about. Uh, Last time we had Cal Newport on, we uh, talked about productivity. I want to give you a few more small tips. That'll hopefully be helpful. Just things you can implement right away to have a slightly better week this week than you did last week. These are things I use in my own life. And uh, Chris and I also, as I said in the interview, he was an early reader on my book that comes out in September, uh, which is all about recovering from burnout and having a a workflow system that actually works and a life management strategy that will actually keep you from burning out. That comes out in September. And uh, Chris and I have talked about a lot of these hacks over the years too. So hopefully that's helpful. That's coming up. But first, I want to tee up the next episode. Man, I am so pumped to share Adam Grant with you. This was a fascinating conversation. And uh, he's a renowned organizational psychologist. And we talk about all kinds of surprising things. Well, like what's wrong with preaching today? Never thought we'd go there in the interview, but we did. And uh, we also talk about his new book, Think Again, which hit the New York Times list shortly after we recorded this. So here is an excerpt. I think that a lot of people who choose other careers would be drawn to the clergy in some way, I think is the first thing that comes to mind. I think the second thing is that a lot of people who are more agnostic uh, or, you know, not even agnostic, right, but just not deeply religious uh, yeah. would be excited about about church as not just a source of community, but actually a place to go to explore and learn. Uh, yeah. In other words, what school is supposed to be. 
Also fun next week is we talk about why conspiracy theories are so popular and how to get out of your echo chamber. One of my favorite interviews, really. Don't miss it. Adam Grant subscribers, you won't miss it if you subscribe. And we've also got uh, more doses of goodness coming up. Annie F. Downs, John Maxwell, Steve Cuss is back. That episode was so popular when we brought him on last year. Uh, Simon Sinek, Brett Hagler, Amy Edmondson, Mark Clark, Alan George from Life Church, and so much more. Uh, man, I'm pumped for this. So, productivity hacks that can make a difference and deliver way more than you think. This one sounds so simple. But I can tell you as a communicator who's often on video or on a stage somewhere, here's here's a little hack. Pick your clothes out the night before. So I think one of the theories is you only have so much energy in a day. You only have so many brain cells that you can burn before you're out of brain cells if you're like me. Like by four o'clock, I'm pretty much out of brain cells. And I would sometimes before I made this decision, spend like 10 minutes trying to figure out, okay, what do I wear? Did I wear that last time? Wait, did I wear that at this venue? Have I worn that in the series yet? I just pick it out the night before. It's like this one I'm going to wear. Then I don't have to think about it. Another similar thing, I eat the same thing for breakfast every day. And what that does is that conserves my mental energy so that in the morning I can think about the content. I can think about what I need to do. I don't have to think about what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Wait, isn't there a Bible verse on that? I don't know. Anyway, uh, Jesus certainly wasn't suggesting you pick your clothes out the night before, but I would um, and keep it simple. And of course, that's one of the reasons that people like Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs, they just wear the same thing every day. They have multiple iterations of it because why? They want to use their brain for other things. So that's one hack that actually does deliver a little more than you think. The other is follow a morning ritual. So much has been written and said about this. Uh, my morning usually starts pretty early. It was a little later today, more like 6 a.m., but usually between 4.30 and 5, a cup of tea, Bible study, and prayer. I do a little bit of reading in that window, and it makes a big difference. And, you know, if you're at a very busy stage, you might get a 15-minute ritual rather than a one-hour ritual, which I would get these days being an empty nester. Uh, But even if it's 15 minutes, 5 minutes, 10 minutes, really deciding to start intentionally rather than just jump into your day, which I did for years, makes a huge, huge difference. So a couple of other things that can help. Um, If you're going to sleep in, uh, sleep in on the front side, as Benjamin Franklin, I think, is reported to have said, go to bed early. I thought sleep was for weak people for years, but I love sleep now. I track my sleep uh, and I believe sleep is a secret leadership weapon. So whenever leaders contact me and they're like, I'm so tired, I'm like, great, here's what you do go to bed a half hour earlier, go to bed an hour earlier tonight. And it's amazing. I mean, a couple of nights of that, you start to catch up. And when I'm really tired, instead of trying to sleep in in the morning, I sleep in on the front side, go to bed a little bit earlier. And then finally, take a nap. Um, Man, naps are great. Everybody from Benjamin Franklin, already mentioned, to Winston Churchill, to Thomas Edison, to Michael Hyatt, to Arianna Huffington. Um, They all advocate napping. I am one of those people too. Usually right after lunch, I lie down for about 23 minutes on the couch. And sometimes I'll have a second nap. You know what? Uh, Because I get up early. I I work hard. I try to work out hard. (laughs) You know, all that stuff. Uh, Winston Churchill put it this way. He said, nature has not intended mankind to work from eight in the morning until midnight without that refreshment of blessed oblivion, which even if it only lasts 20 minutes, is sufficient to renew all the vital forces. I look at a nap as like plugging your phone back in. You're on like 18% power and all of a sudden after a half an hour or so, you're maybe back up to 50%. Maybe not 100, that's what overnight sleep is for, but a nap 
can really help. And I find even after a nap, I'm like back at 80, uh, which is which is really good. I'll take it. So those are some productivity hacks that I think will deliver way more than you think. Uh, I did uh, a few more on the last episode. Well, we are back with a fresh episode. Adam Grant, can't wait for you guys to hear that. And thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you're not a subscriber yet, please do subscribe. And uh, let me know what's going on. Leave a rating or review or shoot me a note at carrie at kerryneuhoff.com. Thanks so much for listening. I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.